Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I am Justin Barton, and this is my show. Some of you may or may not have already listened to this podcast before, but it's all about ordinary people with extraordinary stories and allowing a space where people can reflect on our own lives and look inward to learn wisdom from the life lessons and experiences of the guests of this show. I also invite my awesome guests to share some of the things that are most important to them so that future generations can receive words of wisdom directly from those who live their lives and experience the world today. Today we will be journeying with a man with a fascinating story. Klaus Voigtlander was born in 1941 in Nazi Germany and remembers the closing days of World War II and the terrors that happened around him as a young boy. He will, tell, he will tell us about that, as well as his family's daring escape into West Berlin when he was a boy of about 10 years old, and his eventual emigration to the United States. It is a very good story, and one that I am grateful that we were able to sit down and do together. If you have not already subscribed to this podcast, go and do it right now, please, for free, in whatever podcast platform you are hearing. And if you haven't already reviewed and rated the podcast, what's holding you back? Please go take 30 seconds and give us a five-star rating and write a 10-word review. It only takes a few seconds. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at JTL Podcast for both of them. Also, you can check out the website and nominate yourself or a loved one to be a future guest right here at www.jtlpod.com. Now, one more thing here. I'm really excited to tell you about a special 12-week series that the, that the Journey Through Life podcast will be doing starting January 6th, 2020. It will be called Journey in Recovery, and we'll be having real, meaningful, uplifting, and educational conversations with real recovering addicts of all kinds and from many, many backgrounds. We will be covering one step of the 12 steps of recovery in each week. It'll be a powerful opportunity to educate ourselves on addiction and recovery. It will also be a place where we can understand that addicts are just like you and me in many cases, but have an illness that must be treated, well, just like diabetes or any other chronic illness. It will be powerful to all those who allow themselves to listen and take to heart the stories and lessons learned of these amazing men and women who will be participating. Now, please go check out our partners, alifeuntold.com, and use promo code JUSTIN at checkout to save 10% on a personalized and hardbound book of your personal history to be left as a legacy for those who come after you. And also check out shepherdbrackets.com for an awesome bracket to create your own open shelving concept in your kitchen, bathroom, or wherever else you would like to use some stylish and high-quality floating shelves in your home. Use promo code JTLPOD5 to save 5% on all orders there. Now let's jump right into this meaningful conversation with Klaus Voigtlander that I have entitled, It Was Provided. And you will see how whatever it was that was needed at that time and stage of the life and times of Klaus, it was provided. Enjoy. I know I did. So, Klaus, what I love to do with these conversations is just kind of pick the person who I'm talking to, pick their brain a little bit about their life experiences and lessons they learned from these things. So what I want to do is start off with a question about, Klaus, where were you born and under what circumstances and when okay. were you born? I was uh, born on 
June 15th, 1941, mm. in Nussen, Saxony, which is at that time uh, under uh, Hitler's rule still, and my birth certificate still has a swastika on it. Wow. My mom told me the day I was born in the hospital, all the uh, people were looking out the windows as the German troops were cheering and the uh, people in the hospital, because that was the day, according to uh, what the record showed, that uh, Germany invaded Russia. Wow. And uh, the hospital is uh, still there, but it's not being used as a hospital anymore. Huh. We had the chance uh, about 10 years ago, or 13 years ago, to go back to Germany, which at this time was unified again, mm -hmm. and visit the places uh, where I was born and where my life began. Wow. I'll bet that was pretty neat to go back in. Do you, do you have many memories of those places? I do. I do. And actually, uh, I remember when a city close to us, about 34 kilometers away, the city of Dresden mm. was uh, destroyed. Uh, it was 86% destroyed in one night, and 64,000 people were killed in wow. one night. And uh, the Spokane Review, or the paper at one time, about 10 years ago, had an article, and they compared it to uh, at the beginning of mass murder and the beginning of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow. So 64,000 people killed in one end. A river goes through Dresden, which is a very ancient cultural center. A river goes through it called the Elbe. Mm -hmm. uh, it was lined with bodies, and many people possibly could have uh, died from drowning rather than just uh, burning to death from the experimental phosphate bombs. Oh, wow. And you actually have a memory of that happening. So you would have been three or four years old four at year. that time. The sky was wet, what seemed to me forever, but I think it was about 20, 30 days when that the uh, city burned. Uh, and we were only 34 kilometers from there, so the sky was wet every night. Wow. And I remember as a young kid that I, I was always the Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn type of individual. After the war, after the last week of the wars were literally fought over our heads, me escaping from the potato bunkers and going outside and crawling over hundreds and hundreds of bodies. Wow. So, Man, that's just stuff that's probably burned into, into your mind and soul, the memories of that. <laughs> but how aware of that crawling over these dead bodies were you at three and four years old? What uh, were your thoughts <coughs> on that? I don't know what the thoughts were, but... I don't know. I, I'm confused sometimes because in our society, something happens in a school and the media plays it up uh, so much that I think the media makes it worse than the thing is. Uh, mm. When you, as a child, experience uh, drama and life, I got over it. Mm. And uh, uh, I think the main drama is uh, that I became allergic to blood. And for Many years till I was in my late teens, uh, if I saw blood, I literally would faint and pass out. Mm. Even now, when I go to a doctor and they have to draw my blood, I warn the nurse. I said, be careful because I have this phobia with blood. If I see blood, I will faint. 
and you think that might be due the to the exposure yeah. of, of yeah. so much blood. That's about that. Yeah. And I think that if there's a negative thing uh, in my memory, that's uh, the thing. But uh, because of uh, bombs exploding and bodies, you do really don't recognize the body so much because they're covered with debris and dirt and uh, this and that. And, mm. and, and so, but uh, I was fortunate and I, uh, to get over it, it could have been because of the environment I grew up, uh, people that were around me that loved me, and and I was just being born in the war. Mm. Wow. And and you have, if I remember correctly, you have a brother. Is that correct? I have one brother. Is he older or younger? Uh, two years older. Two years mm -hmm. older. So his memories of that are, are even maybe a little bit more vivid. Vivid. And your mother, correct? Mm -hmm. So So tell me about... Well, first of all, I want to see. So, you were born in 1941. You, you and I've heard you talk in the past a lot about your mother, but I know nothing about your father. What What <laughs> do you know about your father? Uh, because uh, all the railroad workers were actually automatically became part of the army. Okay. And after the war, he went up in West Germany, uh, and uh, he left literally left us behind. And I've. Uh, uh, to the male, West German male, I guess, they, uh, he divorced my mom. And uh, uh, the first time I ever met him, because uh, I don't have no uh, recollection as a child of my dad, but uh, after I served a mission in Austria, I went to visit him, and that was the first time I saw him when I was 21, 22 years old. So you have no recollection of your father until that point? Yeah. Um. And he was enlisted in the military because he was a railroad worker. Yeah, all the railroad people became part of the military. <coughs> but he somehow got to West Germany yeah. mm -hmm. after the war. Yeah. How, as you look back at that, what are your, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? What are your feelings about your dad having gone through all that and then ending up in West Germany? And then we'll get to what, where, where you came from and, and went from there in a minute but ha what are your thoughts on your dad's process uh, through that I know he would correspond he would write to my mom uh, but uh, uh, my mom was a very special person in that sense she uh, she held no uh, grudges uh, mm. she was very uh, and she would never say anything negative mm. in fact about anybody yeah. <laughs> including him and her Reasoning was is uh, how can I have bad feelings uh, about someone and then go into the temple? Mm. So no matter what, every time I would, even in later years, bring something negative up about anybody, she would tell me that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. So so she was a very good, good positive well, influence on your life and on the lives of many. It sounds like. So yeah. tell me a little bit about your mom and her yeah. her background, where she came from, and why she was positive like that well my her dad was born uh, he was swiss mm -hmm. and uh in the late 1800s i believe there was a famine in switzerland and a lot of the farm people immigrated mm. to germany and so he uh, wound up uh, settling uh, on a farming community just outside of freiburg saxony and that's where my mom was born. Mm. And it was the la late 1800s. And 
in that place, uh, members, uh, missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints contacted him, and he was baptized. Oh. So that was uh, way back when. So my mom was uh, actually raised and born in the church, and uh, I was born, which Freiburg is about 12, 13 kilometers or miles uh, from from Freiburg, doesn't mm, right. So my mom had 10 brothers and sisters, and all of them lived around that area, and some of them had 10 children. Wow. So uh, the main body of the church was in the Christeller family. And so, and in the late 20s, 1920s, he took. Uh, uh, three of his children and brought him to the United States. Two of them stayed in New York and one went to Salt Lake City. And then when the war started, he was deported mm. and had to go back to Germany. And Because uh, of his national heritage, the United because States Because he was uh, uh, not as a uh, immigration uh, person. He was a uh, visitor type oh, okay. visa. Mm -hmm. okay. And so uh, in 19... The war ended in 1945, and in 1946, he went to Dresden, a city that was so destroyed a year before that and never returned. Wow. Nobody knows whether he became a statistic and was hauled off. Uh, at that time, the Russians would haul off people off trains and send them to Siberia, or whether it was still the aftermath of, uh, of the bombing a year earlier. Wow. And so my mom had to raise ourselves, my brother... And uh, myself, and I remember as a child that uh, the government would allow certain gardening spots just outside the city, mm. and I remember growing almost all of our food. Um, she would uh, work. That's all I remember her working. Mm. <laughs> and on the weekend, sometimes on Saturdays, we would go already to church, which was uh, about 12 kilometers away, and our main mode of transportation was walking. Mm. So every Sunday or Saturday, we would walk to church, and then on Sunday, we turn home. And it was uh, my one of my distant relatives that uh, became uh, worked on that farm. He was in charge of the cows, the milking, and so my mom would go back, and it was the same farm that my grandfather used to work on. Wow. And that's where we held our church in, in their uh, living room across the uh, a barn where the pigs were below. So oh, it's nice. just really neat. So and I, as a child, I remember no matter how the weather, in other words, ice cold or warm, we never missed church. Since uh, I remember till the date uh, we escaped, uh, I remember only missing church once. Wow. So let's go back a little bit again. What do you remember about the end of World War II in 1945 when, when it finally came to an end in the European yeah. theater? What are your memories of that as a, as a, as a German citizen at that point? Yeah. I, I remember the American troops coming through our city, and about two weeks later, two two or three weeks later, they withdrew again because Germany was already divided prior to the war, and so the place that we were living became East Germany or the uh, Iron Bloc country, and the whole idea of the 
communistic regime was is to keep people in the country. And so that's why uh, the death strip was put up in the wall later on. And so when we escaped, we literally escaped through tunnels and burned out buildings uh, past Russian guards uh, on the late trains uh, into West Berlin and then remained in refugee camps for about two years. Wow. And so how old were you when that escape process about started? About 11, 12. So you lived two about years. five years after the war in East Germany. Is that, are my numbers right there? Uh, about 10, yeah, six. Six, six years? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you, as your mother and your brother and yourself, so and three th- of and you. And a few relatives. And a few relatives made your way. <coughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I had an uncle the one that took over my grandfather's place on the farm, his daughter married my cousin, and so we became related, so I called him my uncle. Mm. And he was a forward observer on a motorcycle in both the First and the Second World War. Wow. So he knew all the ins and outs about how to be on the Great Escape, and he's the one that kind of him and his daughter, his wife, his daughter, and his granddaughter, and my mom, my brother, and I, he took us out, and. Yeah, he knew, you know, we were lots of times uh, kind of left alone, so we were spread out, never mm-hmm. as a group, and passed bond out the buildings in Berlin that he knew of uh, from the war, and uh, still, because in East Germany, not, not very much was rebuilt. Mm. Interesting. So I've heard you share a story about uh, Russian guards shooting at you. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, first, before you get into the details of that, tell me about the Russian, your experience with the Soviet guards, the Soviet influence, and then lead into that experience, and, and tell me a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Of course, after the U.S. troops withdrew, uh, Russian presence uh, or Soviet soldiers uh, were often seen and, and transported, of course, took the farm produces and shipped them wherever. The social structure at that time was there was no private property. Uh, all the property was owned by the the party. And the previous owners became stewards over that. And whether it was a factory or a farm, it made no difference. And if things didn't weren't profitable, the owner or the manager was disposed of. Uh, what happened, we never we never know. But they were no longer there and other people became. So all the food was rationed. Uh, I remember my mom having a rational card. And also the uh, other commodities, you had to go to the store like milk and they had a big barrel and they scooped it out and dumped the milk uh, in your container. Mm-hmm. So there was a present, uh, very little schooling uh, because uh, buildings were still bombed out and our, our city wasn't bombed out too much. Uh, there were still some small apartments and houses. But the uh, one of the occasions, one of my friends uh, took some tomatoes off a truck mm-hmm. that was parked in front of where we were living mm-hmm. and one of the PFCs or soldiers came around and caught him and beat him bloody. And an officer came around the corner and he got so upset, the officer, and he ripped one of the uh, pieces of, lots of defense were wooden uh, 
uh, type of fencing. He ripped one of the two by fours off it and beat that soldier. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, he was so the. I can't complain about the uh, the officers. They were somewhat more humane, but the basic where they were mainly what I consider Cossacks. They had some army bases around, and you could smell them miles away before you get to them because their facilities were a V-shaped trench, and on the bottom was a foot-wide water trench, and that's where their restroom facilities. But they used to took over our soccer fields for us kids who were playing soccer, and... uh, we didn't like that, and since I was always running around the forest, uh, we, there were lots of nice forests around our, our city, I made a little slingshot, and two of my friends and I were on top of a uh, quarry that hasn't been used for probably for hundreds of years, and it was a small pass between the quarry and the river, and one day after they kicked us off the soccer field, the troops were marching down, and we were on top of that quarry with uh, slingshots and horse chestnuts and shooting at them. <laughs> and, of course, they retaliated and blasted the hillside, and I got shot in my left uh, lower side, uh, the groin area. Wow. And it was nothing that serious, but uh, my buddies kind of had to be sure I wouldn't pass out and flake put stuff right on it, and my mom just put some Band-Aids over, and next day I went back in school. Wow. But they Having been shot, shot you're back uh, in school uh, the next day and trying not uh, to yeah, let anybody just with know? Tape on my, yeah, uh-huh. but uh, the uh, principal must have had a little idea because they locked my two friends and me in the school basements overnight, and... Uh, um, and I remember one of my friends was screaming all night because there were rats crawling around uh, the pipes. Uh, and then next day, they really couldn't prove anything. They let us uh, go again. And school over there is usually only in the morning because mm-hmm. w- there were no lunch facilities. But there was school also Saturday mornings, and usually they go on a field tour. So that was that again. But, uh, wow. But uh, a lot of times... Uh, when we went to church, the Russians would be out in the fields uh, shooting at rabbits and other things, but in most cases, uh, they would not harm any women with children. So as long as we were with my mom, she was pretty safe. Mm. That's pretty crazy <laughs> yeah. stuff. But, but, but also, uh, because we had very little schooling, I literally learned to read. We had an old copy of a Book of Mormon, and my mom actually taught me how to read. Uh, so I learned most of my education at home from the Book of Mormon. Wow. And uh, it was the first book I ever read. And uh, after we escaped, there was the book in my pocket that uh, I felt was my comforting blanket. And, mm. uh, it's been constantly with me. Oh, wow. Do you still have that same copy of the Book of Mormon? Well, I have one, and I'm not sure it looks like it, but uh, I looked at the the date it was printed, and it was a little bit later, so somehow a couple of years later I must have uh, replaced it. (laughs) Yeah. Really neat. So so now tell me, let's move into your escape into West Germany. Tell me one or two harrowing experiences during that trek. Yeah. That you that you eventually made it into West Germany. In order for you to move at that time in Germany, you had to have a permit to 
move anything. And so we decided to move to a small village about five or six kilometers away uh, where my uh, mother's sister and her family was living. And uh, <coughs> so we got a permit to move. And with that permit, we were able to get onto a train. It just, we took the wrong train. Uh, rather than going to uh, towards Meissen, we went up towards Berlin. Oh. And as we then got closer uh, to Berlin, my relatives came from a different direction. We got uh, uh, off the train uh, at a certain place before the train went into the station and uh, hit into the fields. And that's where we met up with my relatives. Uh, wow. And then he took us from there uh, late later at nights on another freight train into old into Berlin to some bombed out areas. And I remember jumping off the trains and hiding in the rubble and sneaking into a bombed out buildings. And you have to remember there's very little traffic at nights uh, because of curfews and, and other things. So we snuck into that building, which was the basement of the uh, subway. And which which was also bombed, and it was my job since I was the uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry to sneak up those big stairs and watch for the uh, guard, the Russian guard, uh, and uh, the subway made a slight curvature, so his guard station. And this was in December; it was ice cold, and he would come out of his little guard jet, look up and down, and and have a few more sips from his 200-proof vodka or whatever. <laughs> Again, and that was my sign to let my relatives know and my that is free. And then uh, <coughs> the idea was is, uh, we had to all go into different uh, compartments of the train, the subway, because only in the middle of the station were the, the benches back to back and there was big enough a space underneath it for a person to sh lay down and and not be seen as the train made uh, went forward and the searchlights uh, and the guards were looking through the train. And things went well. And I think if I was ever scared uh, from not going onto the train, but once the train moved, worried that we would go through Berlin back in the East Germany. Oh, yeah. And and so, but it was three or four stops later, all of a sudden this guy with this big helmet on showed up in the window and he knocked and told us, it's safe, you can come out now. And so it was West Berlin police. Wow. And they take you right to a refugee camp and the refugee camps were old army barracks uh, were uh, big rooms holding I don't know, 40, 50 people with straw mattresses uh, along the walls and down the middle. And that's all you would have is a couple blankets, a pillow, and, and line up to for breakfast and lunch twice a day mm. and would would eat what they served. And uh, I was uh, amazed, though, that with uh, a 1,000 people or so escaping along the border and through mm -hmm. Berlin uh, that they were able to do all of this. And yeah. and so that's largely due to the efforts, I'm sure, of uh, the Red Cross and the uh, 
the welfare system in the in the United States. And also, uh, I was going to mention because of the scarcity of closing everything else, uh, the church provided uh, a lot of donations that were shipped into East Germany. Somehow, through the Red Cross, they got permission to do it. So. The, the church provided uh, tons and tons of clothing. So as a youngster, I, as a child, I was probably wearing uh, clothing that your great-grandfather had donated. Mm, wow. So, uh, and, uh, of course, all the food had the desert industry beehive on it. Mm. <laughs> so uh, that's mainly how we survived and wound up in West Germany. And after a year, we were then... Uh, shipped over into West Germany. Uh, we wind up in a city by the name of Ulm and the Danube in Bavaria and uh, in an old castle. Which in fact, it was an outpost uh, built way back when uh, the Romans built it. It was just like the Great China Wall, a wall to protect Rome or Italy from the wild Germanic tribes that would invade the northern part uh, of Italy, oh. and so we remained there for two another year before we got permission to immigrate. And in those days, you had to have a, a sponsor in the United States. They would guarantee the government that they would take care of you in case you couldn't work or or something. Uh, it was a legal process, and I'm glad uh, in those days this happened. Uh, and it was the sign of. But I remember the first uh, Russian soldiers coming through our city and handing us candy bars. Uh, another thing that happened after we... Were those Russian soldiers that no, came No, I'm U.S. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> no. And so uh, because of the food shortage and, and other items like this, after we were in West Berlin, since I've never seen a banana... It reminded me of something my uncle from Switzerland used to give us, which was marzipan in the shape of a banana. So I bought, I uh, had a, a few pennies in my pocket, and I bought one of them, and I bit right into it. And the poor guy there almost uh, fainted, you know. <laughs> and so he showed me that you peel a banana. So I thought a banana was like marzipan candy, <laughs> and you bit right into it. So because of the cultures being different and being raised in an environment that was very controlled, uh, there are a lot of uh, human mistakes, so-called, uh, you make. But I was fortunate, no matter what happened, I always had people that wouldn't bully me or, or ridicule me rather than they would help. Uh, mm. And that was especially true after we came to the states. Wow, that's that's a huge blessing to have support around you, rather than yeah. detractors and people that point and make mm -hmm. fun. Y you love to see that today, you know. Yeah. When when people are that way, it's yeah. a huge blessing in yeah. other in everybody's lives. Yeah. So tell me about your crossing of from Europe into to the United States. Tell me a little bit about that experience. After we got, what happens is uh, the government you go. In our case, we had to go to Munich to the American consulate to be checked out uh, uh, health-wise and other things. And at first, they told us uh, my mom was sick that we couldn't immigrate. Mm. And then they got back to us a couple of weeks later and said they made a mistake. There was dirt on the x-ray machine, oh. and there were no spots in our lungs. And so we uh, 
crossed, it was in December, too, and we had heavy storms. And So in December in the North Atlantic. Yeah, North Atlantic, yeah. Wow. And, and uh, I remember fighting my brother for the top bunk in the ship, and uh, three hours later I fought him to get out, out of the bottom bunk because I was seasick for 12 days. Ugh. And the only time I wasn't seasick is they did have a, a swimming pool on there in the wintertime oh, wow. when I was in the swimming pool. But anyway, I was seasick, and because of the storms, uh, we were late getting to New York City uh, by two days. Wow. And uh, if you haven't been on an old ocean liner, it was called the SS Italia, and it had, uh, it was a 21,000, they call registered ton ship. Uh-huh. And... Uh, when that uh, uh, turbine comes out of the water, it just sounds like the boat is breaking. Wow. A, a huge boat is just shaking. So when the when it's when uh, it's oh, rocking and rolling, when, when the goes, propeller comes the propeller, out of the yeah. water, wow. when you when you go across the wave, and mm-hmm. anyway, and then uh, the most amazing thing happened. I've never when we got into New York Harbor and saw the Statue of Liberty. Mm. Uh, it's uh, you know, sometimes as a child, you waver in what you believe in, and uh, you hope for things to be different and things that you can do. But uh, I remember seeing the Statue of Liberty and reaching for my Book of Mormon in my pocket, and from that day on, I really have never been afraid. Hmm. Uh, I couldn't speak English or anything else, but... Uh, so that was the most amazing feeling, and uh, from then on, uh, we were poor, but uh, the, the, the main thing that happened is we were going to stay in New York, but my aunt there, where they were living, they, the apartment manager wouldn't allow it, and I spent uh, the first months upstate New York on the people who sponsored us on their farm. Mm. So I was on New Year's. The week between Christmas and New Year's, they came upstate, my mom, my brother, and my aunt, and told us we had to move on to go west. Mm. And so it was on New Year's uh, time that we traveled on the Greyhound bus to uh, Salt Lake City, and wow. that's where I stayed from the, that time till we moved up to the Spokane area about 13 years ago. So wow. I lived in Salt Lake Valley for... Uh, over 50, 60 years. So. Wow. So, so you're, I, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes here. You've, you've escaped tyranny. You've escaped from uh, refugee camps. You've escaped across this mad ocean that was really rough. You come in, you see a glimmer of hope and light in the Statue of Liberty and in yeah. the Book of Mormon there where you didn't feel any more pain, uh, fear. Um, then you're stationed in this farm in upstate New York, and they say, hey, it's time to move again. <laughs> what are your thoughts at that point? You're like, I just got here. Why are we moving? Or are you like, all right, let's go. What are you, well, what are you thinking then? We, we had to move on, and uh, I know my grandfather that uh, brought his two children uh, across the, in the late 20s, and uh, he he did go out west, and he did stay in Salt Lake City for a few years, and then he moved up to Logan, 
and stayed with a German family that he knew uh, as a youngster from his childhood uh, that used to be farmers too in Smithfield. Mm. And he did temple work uh, in the Logan Temple for many years. And so that's the tragedy of the whole thing. He was one of the few Melchizedek priesthood holders behind the Iron Curtain, and he disappears. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I told you I'm like Tom uh, Sawyer on Huckleberry Finn. Uh, it just, you need to do what you feel like, uh, because someday you're going to be responsible for it. And uh, my mom didn't have a choice, and so neither had my brother, so we just moved on. We didn't have much, so it, it, it just uh, didn't seem that bad. The only thing I remember is I was so naive, I, I expected the uh, Greyhound bus being attacked by Indians. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and I you're going across the, the Midwest. Uh, yeah, and of course the Greyhound bus, uh, it wasn't the most uh, respectable depots, the places where the Greyhound bus stopped. Right, right. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we was got to Salt Lake City and uh, right about New Year's Day and started school in Salt Lake City on Roosevelt Junior High School, mm. then later on to East High, which was about a mile from where we lived with our relatives. Mm. And then a year later, we moved on on the same street a block or two away uh, and had an apartment, and that's where my mom stayed for most of the remaining 30, 40 years. And uh, she worked domestic work and in those days, never made more than $200 a month, and yet we've always had. Uh, and I remember from my last year at Rosewood Junior High School, I got a job in uh, elementary school, cleaning after school, and so till I graduated every day, I would, after school, go over there and help the janitor. So from that standpoint, uh, I don't understand when people tell me they can't find a job because I constantly have been employed since I was about 14 years old. Yeah. In the summertime in vacation, I would take the Greyhound bus uh, from Salt Lake back upstate New York and work for these people on their farm for three months. And I would make uh, $300, $100 a month. And the Greyhound bus in those days round trip would cost me a hundred, and so I was making almost as much money as my mom. Yeah. And uh, just after I graduated the summer from high school, a friend got me on with the Forest Service, and we were working at the back part at the Windus. Mm. And after a week or two, uh, we went back home to Salt Lake, and uh, the bishop called me in and says, uh, did you see the Desert News? And I said, no, we didn't have papers up in the hills. And he said the church changed the position that now 19-year-olds uh, can go on a mission. Mm. And so this is your interview, and we'd like you to be, meet with the stake president tonight. And I said, well, I don't have any money. And he says, it will be provided. So I went back uh, two days later, the backside of Juventus, and we were put on fire alert, and it was when they had huge fires in southern Idaho. And so it took days till we got up to Chalice National Forest by bus, by airplanes and helicopters on the fire line. 
And then I found out uh, because of uh, uh, being on fire duty, we were paid 24 hours a day. And so by the time my service was, the force service was over, I had uh, practically enough money to do most of my support for our mission. Wow. And my mom paid some of it. Uh, and people I used to cut lawns for uh, in Salt Lake, a couple of them came forward and said, we'll pay so and so much a month. And so uh, it was provided. Wow. So I've learned uh, another lesson in, in faith. As a child, there was a faith that there is such a land that is free, like the United States, by believing in it. And now, hey, anything is possible. And I've never been without work. I love that phrase that you that you said there. It was provided. Yeah. And I think that as as we're looking back through what you've shared with me about your life so far, it was provided. Whatever it was, the the the, the mm-hmm. whatever was absolutely needed was provided. And it sounds like your mom was a great woman of faith that just kind of went along in that same yeah. mindset of yeah. it'll it, what needs to happen will happen and yeah. we'll be good. Huh? Yeah. And my brother's a great person, but his experience has been a little bit different. Uh, they tell me when you come to the United States around 12 uh, or before, the language isn't such a barrier. When you're 14, it's a little bit harder. And so he had to struggle a little bit more and had more disappointments, but he did okay. Uh, but at school, I, I can't ever... I appreciate my teachers. I remember one teacher, he's, when I was at East High, he came up one day, they all knew, you know, I was a, a girl had me show me around and I was bashful to the different classes. And uh, he sat down next to me and he said, well, I'm going to help you. And then I looked at him and said, uh, I speak German. <laughs> And uh, he was my social studies teacher. And, oh, his German was terrible. <laughs> but he prepared little lessons for me, and it made a great, great, uh, uh, great help to me because I was sitting there and saying, here's an adult, and he cares about somebody that doesn't even speak his language, and he wants me to be equal to him. Mm. And so we sat down and... Uh, and I remember him often. Uh, uh, and that was the beginning of me breaking out of my shell because I was somewhat withdrawn. And yeah. and so uh, it helped me with my language. Uh, I, uh, I had a cousin where we were living with, and she would complain when I made a mistake in talking. Uh-huh. And from that day on, he kind of let me know, just talk. Yeah. And so I, I've overcome that barrier where language is a problem, and it has never been a problem. What's that social studies teacher's name? I was uh, going through, and I remember, I, I believe his name was Schwartz. He had Schwartz. a German name. <laughs> had a German name, but his German was terrible. Yeah. And, uh, and there were others. There. I remember my arts teacher, uh, Crafts, uh, his name was uh, Iverson. And he did. And I, I remember my uh, my history teacher, U.S. history, and she chewed me out because uh, I was supposed to give a book report on Abraham Lincoln. Uh-huh. And I stood in front of the class and I said, Abraham Link- Lincoln, which? 
and all that she chew me out, you know. Instead but of who, huh? <laughs> and so, but that was, I think in all my experience, that's the only time yeah. I was reprimanded for uh. for being able to uh, not communicate properly. Mm. But I remember the boys, and I couldn't didn't know how to play baseball, mm -hmm. and they showed me, and I remember going. Since remember, I still had old clothing and everything else. Uh, I was trying to reach for a ball and try to bend down, and my pants ripped all the uh, way from the front across the back. Uh, and one of the boys came up, took his jacket off, and just wrapped it around me. And uh, and and that's just how the kids were. They, uh, it wasn't any different. Uh, mm. They tried to teach me how to go play basketball and. I thought there was nothing wrong when the ball comes running around for me to kick it. Oh. And, <laughs> and all the ref ever did is blow his whistle. So. <laughs> but I did play soccer at East High, and that was the year we, one of the years we took state. Wow. But there wasn't that many soccer teams around. So uh -huh. uh, there were a lot of uh, good, there was a good sized German community in Salt Lake City mm -hmm. at the time. Well, very neat. So um, let's, let's jump ahead now and. Um, look at your your adult life. Tell me some of the experiences you've had in your adult life that have been influential in who you are and what your legacy looks like. Seems like after I came back from Austria from my mission, uh, I applied for a job at the University of Utah, and uh, I wanted to become a veterinarian, and there was a... Uh, cancer research study going on at the University of Utah funded by the Atomic Energy Commission which studied the uh, radiation effects on from the Nevada blasts and mm -hmm. they had a colony of 300, 500 dogs and beagles and rats and mice and St. Bernard's and other animals and I just walked up there one day and I uh, talked to the boss, and his name was Taylor, Dr. Taylor. I said, that's what I want to do, and I wouldn't mind working for you guys. And and he said, let me have you talk to someone. He took me in the back office with all these old files, no computers, you know, all handwritten. And the uh, man's name was uh, Paul Peterman, another German guy. Mm -hmm. And he says, I remember him saying, Paul, you think you can work with this young man? <laughs> he looked at me and, uh, and he said, told him my name is, oh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I worked uh, for the Atomic Energy Commission through the University of Utah. And while there, uh, I went to school. And of course, uh, working for the university, my tuition was reduced by 50%. And I also was in the Army Reserve. and. I made enough money every three months to help me uh, pay for schooling. And I worked full time all the times so I went to the University of Utah and finally graduated with a degree in business accounting. Mm -hmm. So you and went from veterinary to business accounting. Yeah, huh? because uh, he uh, sent, this Dr. Taylor, he sent me to, he was a veterinarian. Uh, mm -hmm. He took me over to, uh, made sure I got over to Colorado to uh, uh, check out the vet school. And at that time, they wanted $40,000 a semester. And it's hard to get in because all the Vietnam uh, vets and so on had free tuition and everything mm -hmm. else. So I'd rather have to scrap this. And so in the meantime, I got married. And 
by the time I ever graduated, uh, I didn't have a student loan, uh, and we had six kids. By the time you graduated, <laughs> yeah. huh? Wow. And I, and I was through with the military. So uh, that's the other thing. See, those uh, things helped me in getting uh, getting where I am. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you had six kids. Is that uh, we the had total number of kids you seven. had? We so had, had one seven. after you graduated, huh? No, uh, okay. one of the twins. We had twins and triplets. One of the twins died uh, at birth. Oh, wow. And then... Uh, my wife had some, after 20 years of mar- marriage, felt like she needed to move on. And uh, a year or two later, some cute little woman worked, came into my office. I was an insurance agent, and one of my triplet daughters was uh, there, and I told her, I said, I'm going to marry that girl. And finally, after her divorce in Canada was over, uh, we had our first date November 12th. And we're married one month later in the Salt Lake Temple on December 12th. Wow. And she had three children, and uh, I was able to adopt all three of them as well. Wow. So so you had triplets? Twins. And twins. Did you have two sets of twins? Or no, one set of triplets one and one set of twins. And then a couple of singles? Or a one couple of boys. Uh-huh. 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 Wow. How did that work out, <laughs> triplets and twins? I mean, how well, old? So were the triplets the oldest? No, uh, the twin. One of the twins. One of the, twins yeah. the one twin yeah. who, who survived was the oldest, and then the triplets came along after that. Huh? And no, and then a boy. Uh-huh. A, le- 11 months later, a boy. Uh-huh. And then another year and a half later, the triplets. Wow. So practically five kids in diapers at one time. Oh, <laughs> how did you and your wife at that time survive that time? <laughs> I know she was a good wife. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like uh, uh, the triplets were actually easier to raise than the singles. Uh, yeah. They had their challenges and we were able to afford a house and a room and uh, be active and uh, it seems like all my adult life I've been uh, serving in the church and between bishoprics and high councils and other activities. And uh, later on, after my wife and I was married about 33 years ago now, we served an inner city mission in Salt Lake uh, and worked uh, in the a, in a Jordan River Temple. So we've been always centered around those things. Around service. Now, um Going back, you said you thought the triplets were easier than the singles a little bit. Yeah. And I, so my wife and I, we have twins, and they're our first ones. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know any different. But then uh, several years later, we had one. And then 14 months after that, we had another. And we were pulling our hair out. We were like, mm-hmm. why couldn't these two be twins? It would be so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, they're all doing well. Uh, you know, they have their challenges. Uh, one of the girls has real addiction problems with uh, with alcohol, and it's. Uh, I'm glad now she's finally realizing that and and getting some help. Uh, yeah. But uh, and also both both of my boys who were met girls, and both of those girls were from the Spokane area, but mm. they met them somewhere else. Oh. <laughs> so so uh, they they live here nearby. Well, one of them lives over in North Spokane, and uh, the other one just moved up from San Diego and lives over in the Portland area, and he works for Nike. Oh, okay. As you look back at your life, tell me one moment that you haven't already shared 
that has has had an influence on the way that you look at the world today. Um, you know, maybe you you saw the world differently before that, and now you see it in a different light. Well, I think there's probably a multitude of factors, but uh, I've I was fortunate. I found myself in a situation where people really cared about me. Uh, I remember my scoutmaster. Uh, since we didn't have a car and we were poor in Salt Lake, he came to high school one day and talked to the principal and said, uh, I want to take him out of school for a day and take him on a trip to southern Utah. He was a representative for uh, Curtis Publishing Company and went down to St. George. And I found out that there's such a thing in those days as Short Creek, Arizona. Mm. And <laughs> I had to stay in the car and he did his work there. But... Uh, since we didn't have a television, sometimes she would say, "You got, we can come over to their house and on Sunday nights and for a couple hours watch some TV programs." Mm. And it's just been that type of influence. Uh, the teachers at high school, the boys. Since I didn't associate with girls, I'm sure they they were asking, "What's the matter with this kid?" But uh, that cared about me enough. Uh, I made some other mistakes, like with the scouts, when they were talking about uh, surviving on the prairie and about uh, uh, buffalo chips. <laughs> I knew what uh, uh, chocolate chip cookies were, and so, of course, I asked, well, how do they taste? <laughs> and they all laughed, but uh, it was a loving type of environment. Right, right. So I, I've got that support, I think, from the scouts and some... The, my friends were the ones I went to scout with, and and so is, is that support system. And I think the other strengths that I have whenever I go through uh, challenges, like the biggest one was probably when I went through my divorce, I would read the Book of Mormon. And a lot of time when I get a church calling or ask the stake president or someone, they say, you give me a week? And they look at me and say, well, I've got to read the Book of Mormon. So... A lot of times when I received certain callings in the church, uh, I read the Book of Mormon in a week, 66 mm. pages a day. So. Wow, wow. <laughs> and, but so I think those are things that help me. Uh, the example of my mom, she would never criticize. Uh, to kind of try to teach us, uh, since we had, uh, I bought my first suit when I went on my mission. I had hand-me-downs from other people, and so she would teach us this, it's, it's not what you were, but whether it's clean or not. Mm. So I still today mint my socks, and I mainly do it now for medical reasons. It keeps your fingers nimble. Mm. And I understand doctors are supposed to do needlework huh. and keep their hands in life. But So it's just, you know, you do things for people, and, uh, and things will return. We had a car broken down in, in Salt Lake here a while back, and we didn't have any money with this. So someone that we once helped years ago with their mission came up with $500. And they just, just like that, things do happen. So miracles wow. do happen. And, and uh, if I, I guess my main motto, and maybe you heard that before, is uh, if you treat a person the way he is, that's what he will become. But if you treat a person the way he ought to be, that's the way he will be. And I, I think maybe I've been in an environment where people treated me the way I ought to be. Mm. And there's a, there's a big difference in that. So, so tell me, 
maybe maybe explain that a little bit better. If I treat someone the way I see them, the way they are now, they'll continue being that way. But if I treat them the way they ought to be, they will become that way. So give me an example where you have seen that maybe where you were the person treating a person the way they ought mm-hmm. to be and how that um, um, maybe helped them change their life's path in that direction. No, I, I don't want to use a negative example, right. but it works negative with negative examples just as good as, uh, as other examples. Since uh, way back when I was uh, in the high council once in Salt Lake and my assignment was the Utah State Penitentiary. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was allowed to see all the prisoners except the six or eight of them that were in death row. In my life, one of the most spiritual moments I had is uh, I was once asked to, inside the cell block, there were some men who were raised LDS and lost their way. And so they, however, gave me permission to meet with them, and there were six or seven of them. They gave us a room in the cell block. And I remember, after talking about three principles of the uh, gospel, it was a teaching, we, you never ask a prisoner uh, why he's in prison. And all of a sudden, they ask. And we sat there, and we... I don't know what really happened, but we talked about the atonement. And uh, everyone in that room, including the guard, (laughs) had tears in their eyes. It was like the whole room was translated. Mm. And we talked a little bit about how this effect of the atonement has on our lives and what Christ did for us. Now, they did serious things wrong in their lives. And so... All of a sudden, the feeling came where there is hope for them. I, I can overcome. I don't know you know, where they are, but ever since that time that I felt like I've, I've almost got translated, uh, we've been visiting people in prison. In Utah, every month, we would, uh, uh, ladies, uh, they were from Pendleton, mm-hmm. and we would go and visit him. We visit people appear at the uh, prison, and they appreciate it. Now, the last ones, neither of them have any faith. They have hope of getting out, but we want to remember them that we were there for them to hug them and tell them you there is hope for you. And I, I guess I feel like because people treated me the way I can become uh, Hopefully, I can give some people the same respect to have a sign of hope. Mm. There is hope. That's that's very powerful. I, I want to jump the track a little bit here and go to a different, a little different direction. Do you ever look back and and think, what if we weren't able to make it across into West Germany? What would my life look like today if I was still in what is Formerly East Germany, but what is yeah. now unified mm-hmm. Germany? What, what, have you ever thought about that? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I, I guess I've been fortunate to look forwards rather than backwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yes, I, I did things wrong, and I admit it. And mm-hmm. I had to say I don't know what they were, but uh, I definitely did have. And I, my heart goes out to them who have to suffer through it. And, uh, as another example is uh, 
I had a a fellow that became an attorney eventually take out bankruptcy on a few people and myself. And it's a large amount. A lot of my retirement, it was a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, and yet, uh, it's one of these cases where it's called a non-recourse bankruptcy. Uh, and I says uh, to the attorney, I says, what does that mean? And he says, well, to put it blunt, if you ever ask him about a possibility of getting money back, we can sue you. And so later on uh, in the insurance field, I still had him insured. And on occasions, he would even threaten when he did something wrong. He would uh, threaten to uh, sue me and State Farm and everybody else because of something that he did. And uh, I was sorry because uh, he didn't, he was going to medical school and didn't make it. He became an attorney. And later on, he worked, however, only out of his house. And the last time I saw him, he was sitting in the basement in the house that he kind of confiscated from his wife's parents. And he was uh, four or 500 pounds, could barely move. And I felt sorry for the guy. And yet, uh, I'm the one to be with the victim, but I can look in the mirror, mirror and look feel good about myself. Mm. Because at this point, there's nothing I can change. I've just learned my course of action, what I do with money. Mm. So it, it's a change of heart that comes back. And it, it's not so much what the work is, as long as it was honest. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to provide. I, I'm grateful for the government system to help older people since we are were caretaking for someone to help financially, mm -hmm. but I can I have a rough time with some of these people struggling on the streets uh, because uh, there are, could be ways where they could work. Uh, Hitler's way was to put them building the autobahn, put them to work, mm -hmm. don't just feed them, have them do something. So maybe that's one good thing about him, but uh, my relatives and I get in big debates. I says, how guys can you be can you guys be so stupid to allow Hitler to take over? And they said, well, you're broke. Your fingernails get washed by the government. If you do anything wrong, they slap your fingers and, and blood will wash your hands. But uh, uh, some guy comes to power and he gives you a job. He gives you dignity. And you readily supported him. And... And so there are some false things. And I was taken by an attorney with, yeah. with the case of money. And so there are people out there. And uh, But I also know is uh, that if I dwell upon it, it will destroy me. Mm. If I go on and treat myself the way I ought to become, and that's a successful human being, then that will happen. And maybe that's what we need to teach the people on the street uh, now let's look forward. You said you're a forward-looking person. Let's look forward 60 years into the future. Your great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren are all sitting around and saying, I wonder what Grandpa Klaus has to say to me. <laughs> what, what do you want to share with them that maybe is some of the most important things to you that, that you hope that they see as, as a legacy that you leave to them? If you tell the truth... You never have to say I'm sorry. So tell the, live the truth. Live your, live your. If if you have a dream, there's nothing wrong with having a dream. Live it, do it. Treat yourself 
like a son of God. How would I look at Jesus Christ and how his father must have felt when he was crucified by his brothers and sisters? Uh, uh, look at yourself. You get hurt by mankind. And uh, a German philosopher once said, uh, the translation isn't quite as smooth, but uh, since I know humans, I love animals. And I guess the explanation is that humans will destroy, but animals will kill to live, in a sense to survive, the instinct. So maybe that's why so many people right now have pets, because <laughs> they're fed up with humanity. Sure. But then what are they doing to help humanity? And, and one, one of the things I heard the other day is... Uh, if you're depressed or have challenges, uh, deal with depressions or uh, addictions or other things, maybe you need to sit down and write a note to 10 or 15 people and tell them you love them. Put something positive in it. And, and pretty soon get over this thing of being felt as a victim rather than being living your dream. Yeah, so I think that's kind of a theme here um, as, as you go through your life. I mean, it would be, if, if I, and I can't even imagine doing this, but putting myself in your shoes as a child and going through the things that you went through at such an early age and some of the struggles that could be perceived as struggles if you didn't have this positive mm -hmm. mindset, it, I think it would be pretty easy to fall into a victim-type mentality but I think it sounds like the positive influence of your mother and your own natural proclivity towards positivity has really helped support you throughout your life. Is that is that, that a that, fair assumption? That's a fair, very, very fair assumption. Uh, let me give you one more example. Uh, years ago, up in the Deer Park area, we were asked to fellowship uh, a person that uh, hasn't been active in the church for... 40 years and we went to visit the family the woman and her husband some of her children and grandchildren were there and the husband came out the kitchen says who are you and we told them we were from the church we discussed of latter-day saints says, oh and he was, went back out well, sadly enough, I don't think it had anything to do with it, but the next time we visited, the whole family is in course were all over the place, and he had passed away. Mm. And hardly anybody in the family, so one of the children asked me and says, Klaus, would you offer some thought <laughs> to give a talk like a funeral service? And so I did. I have no idea what I said, but it must have an impact because mm. for some reason we've become closer to that family and their kids and they're all over here mm. than uh, a lot of families, even the woman, you know, later er, er, years now, uh, whenever there were problems, power shortages, or uh, she would come up to our house uh, up in North Spokane, and I mean, back there in the county, and stay with us. And uh, when she had a heart pacemaker put in, she would stay with us for two or three weeks or even after we moved down here, she had some infection in the lake, and uh, we had her here for about two or three months. And the irony is uh, she got old and 
had health problems other and we were able to have her live with us and she died in our house mm. just a month or so ago and uh, the thing that impressed me the most is when the health providers and other people would or the or family asked her well do you want to move into a home or something like this and she says no i want to stay here with klaus and barber that's an impact that's by treating her even though she had a different life set than than we did and all the families even now it's been we were worried what would happen after she died. they still call us they still include us in our activities oh, and, very nice. and and so that's the reality if if you sow those kind of positive things, they will come back. Mm. It, it will, uh, you know, life might be hard, but the blessings can be great. Life might be hard, but the blessings can be great, huh? Mm-hmm. I like that. So, um, and I think your, at least the youth, and it sounds like it's several other places throughout your life, I think that's a, that's something that, that you can testify to firsthand, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, the blessings can be great. And I, One more question, I think. You have been very service-oriented, uh, and by service I mean wanting to lift those who might be invisible to much of the world, you know, mm-hmm. like the pe- you pe- visit people in prison. Most of the outside world don't even want to acknowledge that there's people in prison, you know. Um, maybe this woman that you had come live in your house and who passed away here, and others. Um, why why do you think you serve those people who are invisible to most or people don't want to see, maybe? <laughs> well, I admire uh, those families who have children and, and other things, and they're always having close together, and to them, my children are all over the country, from Galena, Illinois, to... Utah to Pendleton, California, or wherever mm-hmm. else. But uh, I have a very supportive and giving wife, mm-hmm. and she's even she can be more outward than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little bit more cautious with my emotions uh, than she. She's just serving. I, I just. I just don't know. It just seems to be the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, it seems to. Uh, if I want to profess to be a Christian, then I I need to acknowledge the fact that uh, Christ served, and He served those who are stood in need. Uh, maybe I need to be humble and and be of service rather than being a dictator type mm. of person, uh, because. If, if I stand, uh, understand history correctly, all the big dictators and tyrants had a miserable life. Mm. And maybe I'm selfish. I don't want that. Uh, the other thing is, if, if I point one finger at a person to, uh, for his problems and what he does or doesn't do or so forth, I need to remember that three fingers are pointing back at me. So I feel if I service, that's one finger, then three fingers point back at me to give me blessings. So Mm. selfish. I'm a selfish person. It's all out of selfishness. (laughs) No, I I totally identify with that, actually. No, this has been really good. Are there any other experiences or things, words of wisdom that you feel are important Mm. that you want to put on this before we close Mm. this off? I know there's a lot of people in this world are being oppressed and they 
Some of them have no choice or chance. I'm just grateful that I had the chance. Mm. And my heart goes out to when I now see the media and I see people in refugee camps and, and things, uh, the way things are happening at the borders and so on. Uh, my heart goes out. But I also understand uh, in our society and in my life, I need to have a sense of order. Mm. And things need to be done in the proper and the right way. There are, if, if I proclaim to believe in Christ, then I should try to adapt a few of his principles in my life. Mm. And one of that that is the major portion of the Savior's life was one of service one of service to me so that I can understand the true meaning that there is such a thing of finding happiness. Uh, I, I also recall one of the sayings of a, a Jewish person that survived uh, the, helic the Holocaust who was saying, you know, we don't see much strugglers. Why didn't they uprise in the, in the concentration camps and so forth? And the man, an older man with tears in his eyes, he was saying, they took away our dignity, they took away our pride, they took, about, took away my, our, many of our lives, but they can never destroy our mind. So I'm saying, what do I need to keep my mind healthy? And one of the ways to keep my mind healthy to forget my problems and help other people. The principle or quote that uh, we are all in it together. And uh, uh, it, it just, we need to overcome this selfishness of that I'm better than you are because uh, my skin has a different tone and maybe my suntan is brighter than yours. Uh, or maybe I can afford luxury trips somewhere else and I don't. I, I, I feel happy digging in the soil. If I had my way, I'd be a farmer, mm. be close to the soil. But, but other than that, uh, I appreciate you doing this, and I hope it had an impact. It had an impact on me to reflect upon some of these things and uh, dig out some of my old things here. It's had an impact on me, and I'm sure many people will um, learn and grow from this. Thank you so much, Klaus. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, there you have it. A Journey Through Life with Klaus Voigtlander. It was provided. And as I look back at my life and see the relative struggles that I've had in certain places in my life that felt like at the time were really big, but when I compare it to others, not too bad. But at the time, for me, they were really big. I can look back and I can say, you know what? Whatever it was that I needed at that time, it was provided. And I have a strong belief and testimony and conviction that whatever it is that I need, whether it's what I want or not is a different story, but whatever I need to continue on whatever path I'm on, as long as it's a good path, will be provided at the time that I need it. And I think that Klaus here shows that over and over again through this life story. Thank you again very much, Klaus, for, for having that sit-down discussion with me. And I hope that you, the listening audience, really enjoyed it as much as I did. I love hearing stories about historical moments of time that really have changed the world. 
and their small observation and even part in those um, historical moments. Anyways, please go check out our partners, A Life Untold and Shepherd Bracket, and subscribe to and rate and review the Journey Through Life podcast so that future episodes can come right to your phone and be ready to listen to as soon as they're released every Monday morning. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.